If you would take the hand of the person next to you as we give thanks to God. Father, we thank you for the love that you've poured out on us, for the way in which you take better care of us than we take of ourselves, for the way in which you have placed us first in so many ways. Father, if only we could understand that love more deeply, if only we could be able to grasp it more firmly, if only we could be able to share it more frequently. Father, if, if as we look at this Thanksgiving time, if it reminds us of anything, let it remind us of the love that you have for us and the love that we are supposed to have for others. Let us give thanks over the next few weeks for not just the things that we have, but Father, for what you have done and for who you are and for the way that you have redeemed us. May your name be on our lips more these next few days than maybe it has in the past. And Father, may your spirit guide us as we go into our homes and visit with our families. May we share love with them just as you have with us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray together. Amen. Please be seated. We are counting you down to company here at East Brainerd. We are counting you down to your company because here in just a few days it's going to be time for all of the in-laws and all the outlaws and everybody else in between to assemble at that previously agreed upon location that everyone wanted to come to and say this is where we are going to break bread. And you could have people who show up that look like this couple here. And they're going to come with, with all their critters and, and they're going to expect you to take care of everyone and everything that they bring. And maybe the thought of, you know, getting together with all of your brothers and your sisters and your aunts and uncles and cousins and, and all their plus ones, maybe it just fills your heart with so much joy and just warms the cockles of your heart. And then for others of you, it makes you want to curl up in the fetal position. It makes you want to hide until all of this is over because you know who's coming. This family. The one that always has that, that one. <laughs> that one who stands out. That, that one who is always just a little bit different. Because face it, facing family can be stressful. It can be stressful. And that's why last week we encouraged everyone to, to, hey, why don't you sit down with God before you go and sit down with your family for Thanksgiving. We looked at the response of an obscure Jewish king and, and learned that we needed to lead with worship as we prepare to go and be surrounded by those who perhaps wish us, wish us harm. And today what I want us to do is again gain insight from a story that's, that's hidden away in a book that ancient kings used to read whenever they had insomnia. One more time, I want us to blow the dust off of Second Chronicles and allow God to, to teach us some lessons of peace. Teach us some lessons that hopefully we can carry into the homes, carry into the living rooms and the dining rooms as we go in and enjoy Thanksgiving here in just in just a few days. Now before we read though a story that is probably going to be brand new, 
I want us to think about a story that is very familiar. It was a simple question that was asked of Jesus. Who is my neighbor? It was a question that was asked by someone who was looking to, to figure out the credentials of this Galilean carpenter who had now turned rabbi. And Jesus had earlier agreed with this Jewish law expert that loving God and, and loving your neighbor, that was the foundation for life eternal. And that being the case, the man decided, you know what, I need to delve into this subject a little more when it comes to my neighbor. And so he asked the question. Now being familiar with this story, as many of you are, you probably have gotten to where you roll your eyes whenever the man says, oh, but I, I want to know who my neighbor is. Even in the text in Luke chapter 10, we are told that he was trying to justify himself. He was trying to, to make a challenge of Jesus but the question is actually very reasonable. The word we translate as neighbor typically means companion, kinsman, or friend. It does not usually apply to anyone on earth as we have often started to use it whenever we think about this particular idea of, of showing love to our neighbor. And various opinions actually existed in Jesus' day. For example, love your kinsman was how some read this particular verse. One early text preached, Among yourselves be loving of your brothers as a man loves himself, with each man seeking for his brother what is good for him, and loving each other as themselves. The focus was on loyalty to a person's family, to a person's companions, not on loving all humanity. And as narrow as that interpretation is, isn't it a good place to start? Isn't that a good place for us to start when it comes to, to showing love, when it comes to showing kindness and compassion? You know, showing love for those who are closest to us is actually a lot harder than feeling some lofty, vague affection for, for the whole world. It's kind of like Charlie Brown's friend Linus used to say, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. Or maybe for you, you say, I love mankind, it's just my family that drives me nuts. Oh, I love people, I just can't stand my mother, or my father, or my brother, or my sister, or aunts, or uncles, or cousins, or, or whoever it is that is that one, or that two, or three, or four, or five, who are in your family that you're already thinking, do I really have to go and be with them and be nice here in a few days? Love your neighbor love your family, love your companion as yourself, it was thought of. Many others had commented on what love your neighbor meant in Jesus' time. And I believe that Jesus had his own way of reading this verse. The key, I think, to understanding it is how he interpreted love your neighbor. It's all about the last word that is used in that particular phrase, which literally means like yourself. And it also has more than one possible rendering. You know, traditionally when we read this particular passage, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, we read it so that we should love others just as much as we, we love ourselves, and that's certainly a great goal. But the phrase can also be read in another way. Instead of comparing the two kinds of love, it can compare yourself with your neighbor. So that it would read, love your neighbor who is similar to 
or like yourself. And this interpretation gains weight when you consider the original text from which it came. When the lawyer says that eternal life was found, the foundation of it found in loving God and loving our neighbor, he is combining two different Old Testament passages. Love of God from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 1 through 4, and love for neighbor from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Now, if you were to go back and, and try to look up and find Leviticus there in your Old Testament, and if you were to find chapter 19, you would also be able to read not just the idea of, of loving neighbor as the lawyer described it, but you would also find another context that's found in the very same chapter. You see, a little later there in Leviticus chapter 19, this time in verse 34, here's what it says. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. Notice this, for you were foreigners in Egypt. This verse told the Israelites to show love to foreigners all because they had experienced something that was very similar. Because he says, just like you, they too are foreigners. You were once foreigners. You know what that experience was like. He says, so show them love. They were being urged to show empathy because they shared a similar experience. Now the idea of comparing yourself maybe with your neighbor isn't necessarily that earth shattering. But consider how it reveals the true wisdom then of Leviticus 19 and verse 18. And again, this is the passage that the lawyer would combine. It is the passage that Jesus would also use to say, look, you love God and you love your neighbor. Think about this now in its proper context. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor who is like yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when, when you're angry with your neighbor, don't forget how you are alike. That's the point of the passage. It's the point that was trying to be made there in Leviticus, and it's often something that we end up forgetting. You see, when we realize that we're guilty of the same sins as others, it becomes clear that we don't need to be bearing grudges against them, but that we should forgive and that we should show love instead. All people, all people, yeah, including you, all people are flawed and sinful. But we need to, to love because we ourselves commit the same sins. We are alike in our weaknesses and in our frailties. We're alike. And we are all in need of rescue. You see, in Jesus' day, some actually did read love your neighbor in this way. One early sage taught, forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done, and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. Does anyone harbor anger against another and expect healing from the Lord? If one has no mercy toward another like himself, can he then seek pardon for his own sins? See, I think Jesus had this same view when it came to this idea because of the answer that he gave to the lawyer's question. The lawyer said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded by telling what is one of the most familiar parables in all of scripture. 
He responded by, by telling something that, that you and I have heard, we've seen acted out. It, it, it's been shown time and time again on different television shows and movies, the whole principle, this idea of the Good Samaritan. A man is attacked while he is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he is lying next to the road near death, stripped and wounded and bleeding. Both the priest and a Levi, they come by, but end up passing him by, doing nothing to help the man. But a despised Samaritan comes along and comes to the man's aid, bandaging his wounds and treating them with oil and wine. And, and then he gently lifts the man up, places him on his own donkey, and transports him to an inn. And then he generously pays for all of his expenses. It's a beautiful story of compassion, and yet most of us end up missing the punchline. The question Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor, it sounds simple. And at first glance, it sounds as if the answer is, well, duh, it's the man that's lying in the ditch. Well, that's the man that is your neighbor. He's the one that's injured. He's the one that's, that's hurt. He's the one that is in need of your help. That is the one that's your neighbor. But Jesus turns the question around. And he asked the lawyer, which of the three men, the, the priest, the the Levite or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? You see, Jesus rules out the crime victim as being the neighbor. In Jesus' story, the one that the lawyer was supposed to love was the person who showed mercy. The Samaritan was the neighbor. But here's the deal. The great irony was the Samaritan was the last person on the planet who should qualify as a neighbor. The Samaritans were hardly known for hospitality to Jews. And in fact, they would often attack different pilgrims who were heading to Jerusalem in order to participate in the temple feast. And even as Jesus is telling this parable, I can imagine that his disciples were thinking about their, their most recent time that they interacted with the Samaritans. Just a chapter earlier. Jesus and his followers were to go through a Samaritan town on their way to Jerusalem, but the Samaritans rudely rejected Jesus. And the disciples were so upset that they said, Lord, let us call down fire from heaven and destroy them. You see, making the Samaritan the neighbor undoubtedly pressed the disciples along with the rest of the audience to realize that, you know what? Their neighbor might include even their most despised enemy. And that's the thing. When we're told to, to love our neighbor as ourselves, in the context that it's used here, Jesus is saying, look, the key, to, the key to eternal life, the foundation of life in the kingdom of God is loving the one that you actually despise the most. It's loving that brother that you feel like does nothing to help your family. It's loving your father who left your family. It's loving your mother who is constantly critical. It's, it's loving your sister who seems to be taking advantage over and over and over again of your parents' goodwill. It's loving the one that you despise the most. And that's why we need to dust off the pages of Second Chronicles. You see, buried within the accounts of temple tributes and tribal heads and idolatrous kings, we find a remarkable story that foreshadows 
the parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan, and I think also perhaps foreshadows some of our Thanksgiving feast. The event took place after the tribes of Israel and Judah had separated. If you remember some of your Old Testament and Jewish history, you, you know that after David was king, the kingdom went over to his son Solomon, and then after Solomon, the kingdom was split between two of his sons. And, and that split continued to grow, and, and then each, each separate kingdom then began having their own kings, and this animosity continued to grow between the peoples who were once, who were once one. And that had been taking place. And now what you have in this particular situation, by this time, you have two separate kingdoms who are constantly warring with the nations who are around them, just trying to fight for survival. And at a low point in their history, the tribes, the tribes whom God had brought through the Red Sea together, and the tribes who had wandered the desert and entered the promised land together, fell at each other's throats. Israel... That was the northern kingdom. Attacked and defeated Judah, the southern kingdom. And they end up killing 120,000 of their own kinsmen. 120,000 who had been ancestors of the tribes that they had, all, they, had, they had all walked out of bondage together. They had all wandered around together. They had all received the blessing of the promised land together. And now it's truly brother against brother. And the northern kingdom goes and kills 120,000 of, of their southern brothers. The soldiers were on the verge of leading another 200,000, including women and children, back to Samaria as slaves. But then Oded, a, a prophet of the Lord, stopped them in their tracks. And he tells them, look, the only reason... The only reason that Israel was able to go and defeat Judah is because God was using them to punish the Judeans for dabbling in idolatry. But the prophet said, look, you who are part of the northern kingdom, you're, you're just as guilty as they are in your idolatry. In fact, even more so. And he said that if the northern kingdom was to go and enslave their southern brothers and sisters, it would compound their guilt. And so those Israelites of the northern kingdom took to heart what the prophet told them. And you're never going to believe what the army did next. It's found in 2 Chronicles. Again, it's in your Old Testament, buried there in chapter 28, beginning in verse 14. It says, so the warriors released the prisoners and distributed clothes from the plunder to the prisoners who were in naked. They provided clothing and sandals to wear, gave them enough food and drink, and dressed their wounds with olive oil. They put those who were weak on donkeys and took all the prisoners back to their own people in Jericho, the city of Palms. It's an unimaginable act of kindness. And it was a remarkable moment of grace between the people of Israel and Judah. And you need to understand that even by anointing these prisoners with oil and putting them on the donkeys, it even hints that they were being treated like royalty. And it was foreshadowing something that Jesus would tell centuries later. You see, as you look at this, you get hints in this story of Jesus' parable in several different ways. First, Jesus focuses the action in Jericho. 
One of the, the few times he mentions a specific place as he tells a parable. The victim in Jesus' story was stripped naked, as some of the Judeans had been. And the Samaritan, who was a descendant from the northern kingdom of Israel, anointed the man and put him on his donkey and, and carried him to Jericho, just as was done to the Judean prisoners. You see, as Jesus unpacked his parable, the teacher of the law, the one who would question him, would have undoubtedly recognized these details and realized that the Samaritan was living out a scene of great compassion that had already been demonstrated by his ancestors centuries ago. We miss these things because, well, we don't always read our Bible. And there are certain areas that we just kind of push to the side and think that they don't have any meaning anymore. But see, having these details in mind shed even more light on Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question. The Samaritan, the enemy, is the lawyer's neighbor. And the take-home message is this. Love the person that you so want to hate. You see, it's at the point when the ancient good Samaritans, those individuals who are part of that northern kingdom, it was at the point that they repented and decided to love their enemies, their, their brothers, their sisters from Judah. That was when they became aware of the truth of Leviticus 19 and verse 18 that we looked at earlier. That their enemies were actually their own kinsmen. Their own brothers and sisters. And that they were sinners just like them. They showed love for their neighbors because they realized that they were alike in their humanity and in their sinfulness. You see, in a few days, you and I will have an opportunity to reenact this scene. We will have the opportunity to demonstrate kindness and compassion to, to someone who has caused us pain and heartache. We will have the opportunity, while swallowing our sweet potato casserole, to also swallow our pride and admit that we were more like our father, we're more like our mother, we're, we're more like our cousin, our in-laws, our brother, our sister, than we actually want to admit. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all been abandoned in a sinful ditch and must rely on the kindness and compassion of a merciful Savior. You see, this Thanksgiving, you have the opportunity to show kindness and compassion to your family, to your kinsmen, to your neighbor. And some of us will have the opportunity to demonstrate love to the person that we so want to hate, that we so want to get back at. That, that we so want to, to just take them behind the woodshed and just give them a good whooping for the way that they have treated us or maybe treated people that we love. But when that opportunity comes, can you be the peacemaker? Can you be like the Samaritan who stopped on the side of the road to, to help someone that he did not like? and who did not like him. When that opportunity comes, can you, can you be like those of the northern kingdom of Israel? 
who bandaged the wounds of their southern brothers and sisters. Wounds that they had caused. Can you love your neighbor? No, not some nebulous concept. Not some person that lives all the way across the world. But can you love the person that's passing you the dressing? Can you love the person that asked for the role? Can you pick them up? Can you bind their wounds and show them the same kindness and compassion that Jesus has shown you? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The man said. How do you read the scriptures? Jesus asked. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered wisely, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But who is my neighbor? It's your brother. It's your sister. It's your mom. It's your dad. Your in-law, your outlaw. It's the person that you so want to hate. So serve up a large helping of peace with this year's turkey and dressing. And then together, give thanks. Father, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for picking us up. Picking us up out of the ditch. We thank you for binding our wounds. We thank you for the way in which you have provided healing for us even while we were enemies and at war with you. Allow what you have done for us to become so real in our life that we will not just give it lip service but that we will actually live it out. If not around the table this Thanksgiving and in the classrooms or in the office spaces in our own home allow us to live out the truth of scripture we say we love you may we show that as we love our neighbors those people that we really don't want to love Father, help us to be more like you. And forgive us. Forgive us for the times that we have been at war. Forgive us for those times when we have been the ones taking prisoner. Forgive us for those times when we have caused the wounds of those who are closest to us. And again, give us the opportunity to realize that we are all alike and in need of rescue. Rescue us again today from ourselves. In the name of Jesus, we give thanks. Amen. Can we pray for your family this morning? I know I kind of had a 
blanket prayer for all of us just now, but, but what about your family specifically? Is there anything going on right now in your home, in your house, around your kitchen table that you need prayers for? Where we could just stop as a church family and just go to God specifically for you. Are you concerned about this Thanksgiving and who's going to be there and what's going to be said? Or are you concerned about going home today after this assembly? And worried about the conversations you're going to have to have there? If there's something going on in your family this morning, why don't you, why don't you come as we're going to sing here in just a moment for encouragement. And, and why don't you just come and you don't have to go through all the specifics. We're, I know a couple of our elders will be down here. and Why don't you just say, I just need prayers for my family. And we'll pray. And God will hear. And God will heal. Peace giving. It's what God has given to us. Let's give it to others. If you need to come, please do so. As together we stand. <laughs>